Hello and welcome to Word Birds, a birds of a feather conversation amongst people who care about words. Today on the show, we have Beth Dunn. Beth Dunn is a content designer best known for her time at HubSpot. Today, we're going to be talking about building voice, governing voice, and why the right word might be the long word. Let's sit back and get some insight from the fly. Hello, Beth, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I am excited for you to be here. Let's go ahead and jump right into the quick fire questions. Amazing content is? Uh, quick fire, right. Amazing content is content that meets the user where they are with what they need at the time that they need it. Concise or descriptive? False choice. Go on. <laughs> that's, a, that's a false choice. Um, you can be concise and descriptive at the same time. Why do you think poets make such great content designers? Wow, fantastic. The company with the best brand voice is? I'm not going to say best, but one company that I've been loving right now is Roger and Chris, which is a furniture store. Um, they've just got an amazing brand voice and tone, and it's in everything they do. Best piece of content advice? Keep trying. And finally, when I'm creating content, I always revise. Fantastic. I want to go back to the brand voice. I think that's okay. interesting. So a furniture company, yeah. um, what do they do? How do they do it? That's a great, uh, yeah. So uh, I, full disclosure, I did order a sofa from Roger and Chris. So it, it worked. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it absolutely worked. Um, but I will say that it didn't sort of like hit me head on with the brand voice and tone, like a lot of, like a lot of us do, I think sometimes like we're voicey. Um, it was just the stuff that I wanted. It was the, t the style that I wanted to look at. And then as I got deeper in, I started noticing little bits of quirk here and there, right? Like they, they didn't get in my way with a lot of quirk up front. Um, but there's like, you know, in the emails and then in the educational videos that were helping me decide is velvet right for me, you know, like, there was just a personality there and an ethos there. And then as you scroll through their website and look at the fine print, it starts to, it starts to really, you start to see the pattern. And I just thought it was so interesting and so well executed um, that it was across all of their different channels. It was, you know, I started following them on social, started really paying attention to the emails they sent both before and after the transaction. Like that, those are important to me. Like I really try to see um, where's the veil that you walk through? There's almost always a, a backstage to an experience where the brand voice starts to falter. And I haven't found it with them. That's, and I mean, I think that that's, you would, you would know where to look based on who you are and what you do, because right. I would imagine that a company would do well in the front office aspect of their brand voice, the marketing, the sales, the, the post sales and support. But you have visibility all the way back to the beginning of the process because you're a person that's owned brand voice that lives within the product organization. That's right. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my backstory and where, how I, how I ended up doing that was I just sort of fell into being product UX writer at HubSpot long ago. Um, and that was when we were still divining our brand voice and tone. And so we had, I had this great collaboration with the marketing team. We knew we wanted our brand voice to be consistent throughout the user experience, throughout the entire 
funnel, as we called it then, the flywheel as we know it now, uh, because as we as things were evolving at that particular period in time, we started noticing that the user journey wasn't linear anymore, right? And I think that this idea of brand voice living in marketing comes from a world where we expect the user journey to be linear. You you first encounter a brand through its marketing, that's its kind of front of shop, and then you progressively get closer to the back of the house, um, and then you're you're a paying customer, you're a user, and they kind of figure they've got you. Right. And so they don't have to give you the razzle dazzle anymore. Um, I don't mean to impute, you know, intent in that sort of malign sure. way. But but still, you know, I mean, I think often the sort of energy starts to flag as you get further down the funnel with a lot of companies. So from my point of view, it was really interesting to start from a, a seat on the product team and see that the real goal was to make sure that there was no veil that you walked through. You didn't get shiny, glitzy, glammy, you know, quirky, fun uh, voice in marketing. And then you hand over your credit card and it, the world turns to black and white. Um, and it starts to feel like business software because that wasn't who, that wasn't who we were. It wasn't what we were about. And that's really what my work in brand voice and tone has been about since then is trying to figure out, not just like, what do you want to sound like, but who are you? What are your values as a company? And how do, can you enact those values, not just in what you say and how you say it, but in what you do and when you do it? So it's, it's this whole thing. And I know sometimes people call me out on that and say, well, isn't that principles? Isn't that values? I'm like, yes. You know, why, why is that owned only by sort of, you know, strategy and writers are seen as the sort of execution aspect of that. I mean, we, we should be owning that strategy piece. But how, so in so many companies, mm. the creation of content is siloed. Yeah. So product, product owns documentation and product manuals, and then there's a knowledge team, and then there's the marketing organization and content marketing uh, support has their own content creators you've you've been in large companies hubspot's a big company yeah, yeah. how how do you make that happen because it, i go out and i try and find that person in the business that chief content officer that chief right. voice officer experience officer and i come up empty right. how does a big company how should a big company manage that singular experience right well, I think it, I, that's when you start looking at org charts and say, like, you know, where does this rest? Where does this sit? Who owns this? And you're right. It doesn't tend to sit in the sort of like content czar position, uh, especially in these smaller. It's often the smaller companies that are best at brand voice, the ones who are not afraid to have a personality. And those smaller companies, I don't think it's an accident, tend to be more decentralized. Um, they t and HubSpot is has, it continues to this day to be a fairly decentralized, in the best possible way, sort of organization um, where everybody thinks like an owner. So the fact that I was able to influence brand voice and tone from a seed and product, um, I remember at one point somebody asked me, like, what's your authority level at HubSpot? I'm like, authority or influence? Because I never really, you know, was too mm -hmm. high up on the ladder, you know, but but influence is a different thing. So I think that it's a part of this mindset of like, you don't have to be a people manager. You don't have to have a C-level title to be a leader, right? And I think content people are a prime example of this. We can be incredibly strong influencers and leaders in our organization, 
without necessarily having that organizational structure behind us or like an army of people that we manage or an empire in that sort of way. So what we, so to answer your question about how do you actually make that happen from that sort of position of I'm, I'm a leader, but not a manager or a C-level person, um, you know, tools, basically. I mean, I like, I'm a software gal, right? So I like to build systems and tools that give everybody the power to um, uh, execute on a unified brand voice and tone. So what we did at HubSpot famously was created a tool that eventually got called Bethbot. I don't like, you know, that wasn't my idea. Uh, Might be a different Beth. I don't know. It it became an in-joke that like, what, you know, what are you doing? You're actually trying to replace yourself. And this is before the current wave of AI, you know, coming for our jobs. But here I was creating an internal editor bot that allegedly was replacing what I do, but all it was really doing was freeing me up to do higher level strategic work. You know, I, back in the day, I used to joke that I was spending 90% of my time fixing people's apostrophes or saying that should be lowercase, which I think a lot of UX writers and content designers and editors and organizations can relate to. And just imagine if I were actually free to help build the business or help build the brand voice or do something really meaningful with that time. So what we did was created this internal editor bot that anybody could either have as a sidebar on their document that they're working on or think of it as like a bespoke sort of Grammarly, you know, or Hemingway or something like that, Um, or copy paste your content into it. And it would give you um, things to fix based on our own style guide. So we actually customized it based on our own style guide. Um, And that just meant that I didn't have to do those things. Nothing had to come through me. I didn't have to be a bottleneck for that sort of baseline of is this correct? And we were able to put that in as an extension in, what was it? It was a chatbot in Slack, a Chrome extension, a web app inside our VPN, um, and a build blocker in GitHub, right? So you, so basically you could not ship a language string. You could override it on a line by line basis, but like, why would you do that? Like you couldn't ship a, a string to production unless it passed this style guide test. Uh, which just meant, again, I didn't have to be a bottleneck. I didn't have to say, it all has to come through me. No, it all has to go through the style guide. Everybody needs to use good judgment. So did you, I mean, did you have a team of engineers to work with you or did you just cobble that together yourself? Uh, I had an engineer. I actually had two at various times. I had one brilliant, fabulous young engineer who was looking for a side project um, that sort of got, you know, pushed in my direction. And we worked together to like, I basically did the rulification of the style guide, and he did the coding. Um, and then we actually uh, um, found and uh, recruited another engineer when it came time to build all those extensions. He was sort of an extension specialist, right? Oh, we had a sketch. Um, and we were using sketch at the time instead of Figma. So it was also available in sketch as a plugin. So it's pretty brilliant the way that we were, you know, we able, they were able to put it into the workflow of anybody in the organization. So as a as a product a member of the product organization, yeah. you were able to, I'm going to use the, the word legislate, but influence the use of the Bethbot mm-hmm. wherever content was created in the business. 
It was opt-in. It was completely opt-in. Uh, and I think to this day, there are people in the organization that don't know it exists. And then when they do hear about it, I was just talking to somebody the other day who used to be at HubSpot, left about the same time I did. And I was telling her about Beth Bot. She was like, I didn't know about this. So it wasn't legislated. It wasn't mandatory. It was just a useful tool that a lot of people got a lot of value out of. And basically, once people found out about it, they, they tended to adopt it. One of the nice things actually was I remember people used to come to me a couple of years after we rolled it out and say, I love BethBot. I used to use it a lot. Don't use it that much anymore. And that's because they had learned, they had internalized the rules of the style guide. And they found that it was giving it, it you know, they were getting a thumbs up consistently from BethBot. And it's like, that's also a win. I don't yep. need everybody to use it, you know, if you get it. That's how we feel about the inclusive language feature in our product. It's yeah. great. It's going to help you. But eventually you won't need it because you will learn the things that you should and should not say in That's your right. writing. Yeah. Um, you can't just correct. You have to explain and correct because some of the things you would never imagine and people learn and they don't come back through the same check. That's exactly right. Yeah, we actually had two categories of things in BethBot that were one was a rule. It was like, yeah, no, the S in HubSpot gets capitalized. That's a rule. Uh, and the other things were suggestions, you know, and so sometimes in context, I mean, it wasn't smart. So, you know, if you if there was a word, like we actually created a different rule set just for the recruiting team. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to avoid using certain words and phrases for inclusivity purposes, right? So you wouldn't want to say guru or, or rock star or something like that. But you can imagine there are instances where the blogging team might want to say rock star because they're talking about an actual rock star or something like that. So you don't want to make it a hard and fast rule. No, you can never say that word. But you do want to flag it and say, consider the effect of your words. This might not be the right word. If you're, if this is a job posting, you know, use a different word. So, so yeah, you have to have that sort of contextual coaching in mm -hmm. the product as well. So building how the, well, first of all, I just envision you walking around the office with a t-shirt that says, I'm Beth. Um, I would, I mean, did you sign autographs? Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> st st stepping back to the beginning of the Beth Bot, um, the original brand voice. Uh, I mean, you were you were involved in the generation of the original HubSpot brand voice. Mm -hmm. How did you set out to do that from any place in the business? Product, product. It doesn't really matter where. You still have to work with the management, with the organization, to define the who, the what, and the why. Um, how did you start that project? Well, again, it was a collaboration, you know, again, it was sort of saying um, where is mostly mostly me and the marketing team. There was um, we, we actually had this um, collective, this group of people who would meet every week for a little while. And we were when we were mapping this out uh, and we called it Project Nimbus for some reason. I think it was an acronym. Um, I think it stood for something. So the M would have been marketing and I don't know. We were very into acronyms. At um, and so. It was it was a cross-functional group of people, basically, is what I'm saying. We would meet on a weekly basis to say, where are we getting this right? Like, what's the what's the avatar? What's the example of nailing the brand voice? And then to kind of look at it and say, why? You know, um, one of the ex exercises that I remember we did back then that I, I've since brought into workshops and trainings that I do is take it to the extreme and say, like, all right, so we really like how this line is super friendly how could we take that too far? What would it look like if we were way too friendly in this situation? And then say, why? Why is that taking it too far? What about that gets what was so right 
so wrong. And that just sort of like helps you define the edges of what you mean by friendly and the edges of what you mean by helpful. So we actually eventually kind of narrowed in on defining our brand voice with adjectives like most of us do, helpful, human, humble, kind. They have changed over the years. I think they sort of migrated from and we had clear in there and then that just became assumed that was table stakes, you know, so helpful, you know, like, let's be clear. Uh, helpful, human, humble, kind, I think is what ended up being on. I got pencils made so that everybody had our brand voice and tone. like people use pencils. I don't know why, but everybody wanted them. Anyway. I have st- I have stickers for this podcast. I don't see a single person. I sit in this room by myself, um, but I, I was. <laughs> Stack of 300 stickers. I'm ready. I'm ready for the, the people to we come. Had stickers too. And uh, those were wildly popular. People really like laptop stickers. Yeah. they. I think people would like these too. Yet here we are. And yet uh, here just, we are. <laughs> just sitting in a pile on my desk. Oh, well. I would, um, I would use your sticker. I would put it on my laptop. I will make sure you get one. Thank you. Um, and to all of you listening, if you want a sticker, I have 300 of them. So feel free to. I, and I have pencils. Right in. We got pencils, we got stickers, we're ready to go. Uh, Beth, one of the things I like to talk about is the PSOTD, because I also like acronyms. Mm -hmm. And that is the provocative statement of the day. It is a a lesser held opinion that you have that you think might differ from the mainstream. What would your PSOTD be? You're really going to make me say it, huh? I am. Okay. Sometimes the longer word is the right word. Travesty. How is that possible? Explain yourself. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are a couple of different cases. Uh, first of all, language is a very precise thing. And, and just because you are choosing a shorter word doesn't mean you're conveying what exactly you need to say. So you don't necessarily want to oversimplify if you are sacrificing clarity, right, at the risk of uh, uh, on the altar of brevity, right? So that's one thing. Clarity is more important than anything. And sometimes precision is a three syllable word. How's that? That's fan. I just. Fantastic. Came up with it. So <laughs> I, I will good. say there's one caveat to this, and the answer is uh, the the right word is never utilized. <laughs> it's always used. Yeah. Could it also be synergy? Uh, <laughs> never. I think that's on the no list. That was on the block list. Yeah, I think we, we have one of those in our product as well. No buzzwords, and it just yeah. takes out yeah. most of the things that I say. Um, it was I, I used to use a lot more flowery language until about 2016 when I saw people using very flowery language on TV and I realized how ridiculous I sounded. Anyway, um, I come from a background of like really, really, re- I, I read a lot of 19th century British fiction as a kid. Um, and so I tended to write as like, people do. Right. <laughs> and use a lot of really like words that people don't use anymore because I didn't know that they didn't use them anymore. So I had to train myself out of that too. I can relate. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Beth, thanks for being on the show. Love to get you back in here again. Thank you. I would love that too. Thanks for listening to Word Birds. Word Birds is hosted by Chris Willis, produced by Charlotte Baxter-Reed, and brought to you by Acrolinks. For more information on Acrolinks, visit www.acrolinks.com.